Today on the Tough Juice Podcast, I had someone that I was inspired by, still am, in a major, major way. One of my colleagues in the entertainment business, Jamel Hill. Her first interview after her unbelievable wedding, what inspired her wedding, some of the vendors that she had come in and support and sell some of their merchandise at her wedding. Also, we also talked about how Detroit made her, talking about adversity, how she started working for the free press at the age of 15. I can't even remember what I was doing at the age of 15. That's right, I was incarcerated, Ethan Allen. But we also got into the depth of, you know, her sending out a tweet that she got attacked from the White House itself. You do not want to miss this episode. Subscribe to the Tough Juice Podcast on the Himalaya app or wherever you listen to your pods. So this your first this your first interview since being with Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's the first one. All right. Look at you with the exclusive. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I Come see on. you. Thank you. Look Congratulations. You. Thank you. All right. And I want to start off just saying I have so much respect for you. Huge fan. Always have been. And been supporting you from afar through everything. Obviously we're gonna get into it. But First, just, you know, once again, congratulations on your wedding. And how was that whole experience? It was great. And look, this is no disrespect to anybody else's wedding. And I've been <laughs> to some great weddings, but we had the best wedding of all time. All like, time. of all time, we did. And I've talked to a lot of couples who they complained about the fact that on their wedding day, they didn't have any fun. That was not our problem. <laughs> <laughs> Too not, much fun? No, I mean, just the whole weekend in itself, we got married in Dana Point at the Monarch Beach Resort because it just so happened that's where we had our first date. Boss. Um, and so, uh, you know, family came in, friends, everybody. And so a lot of people were staying at the resort, had the rehearsal dinner on Saturday. That was a blast. But the wedding itself was was great. I mean, we had um, a lot of surprises for people that they didn't know was coming, not even our own bridal party. Um, like oh, Music wow. Soul Child sang me down the aisle. Nobody, nobody knew that was happening. Yeah. Yeah, so that happened. Um, one That's of my, major. Yeah, I mean, I, I did feel kind of like a boss on that one, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but I, Beautiful is one of my favorite songs, and he performed at the reception uh, as well. We had an In-N-Out food truck uh, that came to soak up all that drunkenness after they drank all the good liquor. Yep. Need um, that grease. Need that grease, right? <laughs> Our intro was lit because um, we came out to ape shit, and we... <laughs> We acted that way, <laughs> definitely, when we came out. Um, and our first dance was to uh, Mary J and Casey, I Don't Want to Do Anything. So wow. it was I, it's so many memories, so many moments, you know, funny and otherwise, that, that we had. And it, it's hard because you got a kind of game plan in the sense of, because we, we had this discussion, me and my husband, a few times, like, okay, how drunk are we trying to get at our own wedding? Like, you know, you got a game plan that because you want to remember everything. So you don't want to be too, you know, messed up. But we were we were appropriately tipsy. So that was good. So it was cool. Oh, everything was cool. Remember everything, everything that happened. And um, we, we yeah, we just had a fun, a fun day. And so, um, in fact, we wound up staying an extra day at the resort. And so just to live. relax and live and take it all in. And um, we're still kind of riding the high from the wedding. And so to go from that into our honeymoon, which was crazy, because um, we wanted to be gone for about a month, which we were, uh, 
to go from that to then traveling the world. It was just, um, I mean, it's the, it was the best month of my life. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. And I was watching and I saw the Instagram post and I saw you guys on the plane. I was just like, that's dope. That's yeah. a good vibe. Yeah, it was it was great. And so, um, you know, we're now having to transition back into, into real life. Cause, you back know, to work. Back to work and everything. But, you, I mean, you, when you spend, you know, you spend time, you plan this big event, and then it happens, and you do go through a little bit of a hangover where you're just like, wow, it's over. It's like an, a great amusement park ride. You kind of want to, like, do it all over again. So, um, but, yeah, it was, it was really, really phenomenal. Going through the process of planning the big event, and having all the vendors come in from Detroit also. Yeah. Like, how, how important was that for you? It was really important. I mean, we went into it with some defined goals. One, um, and let me be clear, we did not plan anything. So, but the num number one on the list was we wanted a black wedding planner. Oh, And we, we got that. Um, Slow Meek from Carpe Diem Events. She, she... She was beyond exceptional. So we started there. Detroit, being that we're first, uh, both from there, we wanted there to be Detroit flavor at an L.A. wedding. So our DJ, DJ Cuts, was from um, Detroit. Uh, the videographer, wedding photographer, they were from Detroit. I mean, it wasn't just about um, making sure that a Detroit presence was there. It was just we wanted to pay tribute to a city that we feel like had a lot to do with the success that we've both, both been able to enjoy you know, in life. And um, Detroit is one of those cities where, I mean, I know a lot of people can relate to this, where, you know, it's been kind of discounted and um, it's not the cool city. It's not Chicago. It's not L.A. And so whenever we get an opportunity to show people that good things come from Detroit and that there's a lot of good people in Detroit, we want to make sure that we do that. You always put on for Detroit. So, like, always. what is your relationship with Detroit? And how has it impacted you? How have it shaped you to who you are today? Well, Detroit's a tough city and tough both in the dynamic in terms of some of the conditions of Detroit, but also tough with the type of people that it produces. You grow up with a chip on your shoulder and with a hustle hard mentality. And that's what I, I, that's why a lot of the things that happened to me in my career, particularly over the last five years, did not bother or affect me in the way that they might have done some other people because of where I come from and how that city basically raised me. You're a little and, more battle tested. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, the the president going off on me ain't shit compared to the <laughs> stuff that I saw in Detroit. It was like, oh, okay, all right, great. This, then what? Then what, right? Yeah, these are just words, you know what I'm saying? That's just a tweet, all right? You know, talk to me about, you know, some of the violence I witnessed or having to see my parents, like, recover from drug addiction. Like, that's the real shit to go through. The president tweeting about me is not the real shit. Yeah. So, um... So for me, I will always appreciate and love Detroit because it did give me that toughness and it gave me that mentality of, okay, this way is not going to work. All right, let me find another way. It taught me how to reinvent myself because the city has had to reinvent itself many, many times. Some successful, some not so successful. Um, but that doesn't mean that you stop trying. And so I've always been able to adapt and that's the part that I've, I've loved about, you know, being from Detroit. And there's just something to it when you're uh, constantly uh, or from a place that's a, a constant underdog. And I wouldn't even say underdog would mean that they would have to register on the map. Right. <laughs> but Detroit for so long has not registered to people. People are paying attention to it now because you're seeing some major entertainers come out of there. Downtown Detroit has totally changed and been, you know, reimagined. But. 
uh, for most of my life. I mean, Detroit was the only time you saw Detroit on, on CNN or national news is when they released uh, the murder rate for all the different American cities because Detroit was always in the top five and many years number one. So when you come from a, a place like that, it just teaches you uh, how to have a certain level of resiliency. So for that, um, I will always love Detroit. I want to talk about your beginning and coming up. Like, what did you experience coming up in your household and what did you see on a day to day? What was considered normal? All those things. <laughs> and then where are you at now? Well, um, so coming up, I was raised by a single mother. I knew who my father was, but we were estranged for kind of the early part of my life because he was a recovering heroin addict. Um, you know, my mother, she went through some, some personal challenges. Uh, she's a rape survivor. And sort of after some of the abuse that she endured, um, she started using drugs as well. So I had to, I kind of had a front row seat to what her um, addiction was. And luckily we had some kind of good family around us. So I wasn't, while it wasn't normal what I was witnessing, there were normal elements to my childhood. My grandmother was very involved in, in my life. And so she was a real beacon and a guiding force for me. And even when my mother was in the throes of her addition, addiction, um, achievement and education meant a lot to her. So I knew, regardless of what I witnessed, that was not going to be an excuse for me to come home with bad grades. It wasn't going to be a bad behavior. It was not going to be tolerated. So it was still a, a certain structure and discipline in my life, despite the fact that I was witnessing these other kind of hurtful and, and harmful things. And... Um, you know, I, I told both my mom and my dad this many times. I was like, the greatest gift you guys could have ever given me is showing me what not to do. And so wow, because neat. of that, um, I wanted to, seeing how their lives had unfolded, I wanted to make sure I put myself in the position to have as many options as possible. So I got an academic scholarship when I was in high school and went to Michigan State because I knew in high school I wanted to be a journalist. And so everything that I did from the time I was in 10th grade up until now was about the pursuit of, of writing and being a journalist and um, telling stories. I, that's all I know, that's all I'm good at. Um, I didn't have like five or six other things I wanted to do. I've only wanted to do this. Um, it's taken on different forms because when I first started, all I wanted to do was be a sports writer. And as media changed and landscape and everything else became different, I mean, I still do the same things. It's just that it has a completely, um, you know, it's just different now in 2019. But all that being said, you know, that was kind of my goal and my purpose is that I want to make sure that I put myself in the position to have as many options as possible. It was a clear case of do as I say not as I do. Exactly. Right? Right. We grew up with, a lot of us grew up with parents and parental figures who were like that. Mm. Um, and it can be a challenge because if you're in that environment, I mean, we've seen the cycle of certain things carry on for generations, right? I think it's normal too. And Yeah, because yeah. if it becomes normal to see people behave a certain way or to see violence in your home, to see drugs in your home, then that's what you, that's all you know. And I'm I'm grateful and thankful to God that I was able to go uh, to someplace like Michigan State and start to, through sports writing, experience and travel the world because it broadened my perspective and it allowed me to see that what I grew up with, while it was it was challenging and in many ways taught me a lot of things, it was not normal, you know. So, um, so for me, um, it's always been important um, to be ambitious and to be driven. And, and to be stable. And so um, I was talking to um, 
my therapist about this once, about, um, you know, people who are the children of, of addicts, you know, there's a certain stigma there and, it, you know, sometimes they repeat the behavior, but the other behavior that comes out of that is a need for control. Mm. Um, because you have such a lack of control because of what you experienced as a child. And so you do everything in your power to make sure you're in, a, in controlled situations. And I realized, my friends laugh at this now because they know me, but I realized I was a bit of a control freak. Not in a negative, just a little bit, just a little bit. not <laughs> a negative, harmful way, but I think in a way that served me so that, you know, if it's anything I chase, it's like stability and making sure. Um, and I'm sure, you know, knowing what I know about your background, that to some degree you were the same way, that some people might look at it and say, oh, Karai's got enough money. He's yeah. got whatever. you like, so you don't know <laughs> what I know, right? Yeah. And what I came from, yeah, right? Man. And so I kind of kind of feel the same way. Hey, what's going on? It's your boy Karan Butler, uh, host of the Tough Juice podcast. And when I'm traveling all around the world and doing numerous shows on multiple platforms, whether it's national or regional, I got to always have my Saks underwear on. And I tell you what, it's all about being comfortable. And it's so important to be comfortable when you're on these platforms because, you know, you're on the stage for probably four or five hours at a time. You may get a 10-minute break. And, you know, when it get a little tight down there, man, it's uncomfortable. You know what I mean? So, you know, Saks underwear, they're legit. They sent me a package about a month and a half ago. And it's the best experience I ever had, you know, from a comfort level. And once you go Saks, you never go back. So because I enjoy the Saks Underwear line so much, I've worked with Saks Underwear on this great limited time deal just for you. Right now, you can save 10% and get free shipping on a pair of Saks just by going to my special URL, saksunderwear.com slash toughjuice. That's all caps. Order a few pair of Saks now with this great offer. Go to saxxunderwear.com slash toughjuice. That's S-A-X-X with two X's. Remember, saxunderwear.com slash toughjuice. That's all caps. Whether you're on the treadmill, whether you're on the elliptical, or whether you're just playing a little pickup at the gym, this ballpark pouch will have you feeling extremely comfortable. And I think that comfort is a huge part of fitness uh, so many times that you you know you put on tights and these different you know uh, equipments and uh, inventions and for numerous years I've always had you know situations where you had developed rashes or whatever the case may be once I slipped in my ballpark pouch I never slipped out Saks underwear it's a must-have yeah, I love the grind and I love the component of like similar to your situation. I didn't have a father figure. I didn't have that around my mom. You know, um, I was fortunate that she didn't have any addictions or anything like that, but she had lack of many things and uh, education was at a ceiling, but she was aware she had life experiences that she poured into me and told me, don't do this. So to your point, what you were seeing your parents do, you knew exactly what not to do from their mistakes. She always was educating me in a, in a sound mind telling me, don't do this, don't do that, because this happened to my brother. Mm. This happened to my baby brother. I don't want it to happen to you. So she was still giving me that insight to the best of her ability and trying to educate me on the fly. Plus, you can't underestimate the cycle of poverty and mm. what poverty does to... It's, a, it's, it's traumatic. I mean, it, it really it is. is. As you said, when you're in it, you think it's normal. But when you step back and take a look at, at the 
what that does um, to you psychologically, like that's that's its own trauma to get over. It really is. And especially with the way the stigma on poverty and the way we treat people (laughs) who are impoverished and come from those situations. I had to, you know, that's something I didn't really understand until I was well into adulthood about what even going through the cycle of poverty kind of did to me. Yeah. And how we treat us in the past and how others treat us. Mm-hmm. That's a whole nother a whole layer nother. <laughs> of just weight, <laughs> right. you know, on the whole situation. But did you ever go outside the, the, the state of, you know, just, you know, traveling, doing anything, or was you always just in Detroit? Well, um, growing up, always in Detroit for the always. most part. Yeah, and, likewise, uh, same here. Yeah, yeah you, you grow up in a city, and it, it, it's funny because when I go back to Detroit now, it feels so small. I feel like I'm in a small city, yeah. a small town, and I'm like, okay, it's 700,000 people that live here. And that's, you know, that's a declining population. When I grew up, Detroit had over a million people, and it felt so big, right? But the reason why it felt so big, and um, I'm concentrated to just, you know, a, a side of town or a pocket within the side of town, if it just felt that big, that big to you because that was the only world you knew of. That was your whole access was right crazy. there. It is crazy. And then once you get to Michigan, once I got to Michigan mm-hmm. State, and this might have been in your experience, once you got to college, you start interacting with people from other places, and they start telling you things that are very foreign. Like, oh, yeah, me and my family went on vacations. I'm like, together? Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> y'all left and y'all went somewhere? Like, oh, that's, that's what so unique. That like, right? <laughs> How? How did that happen? And... um I guess that's why now um, in, in adulthood I became um, such an intense traveler because when your world has been constricted and when you grow up that way and then you start to realize these other things and experiences that are out, out here, it just puts uh, you know a hunger in you to see more. And so um, you know I uh, <laughs> it, it's just amazing sort of the level and I mean this in a good way the amount of ignorance you realize you carry once you get outside of the parameters of what you know. <laughs> that is so crazy because when I went to prep school, and I'll never forget this, you know, my family was, you know, the unity is crazy, you know, family first, everything, God and love. But when I went there, I stayed with a host family and I spent time with them and they was like, all right, we're about to go to our lake house. We're about to have what? like these, these trips, these staycations in the state of Maine, and I was just like, whoa, like, the conversations that I was just, I was numb to, because I never, I never heard that type of conversation in our household, because we was just trying to get by. There it is. We were just trying to make it, but having the foresight, and they didn't have a, like, they, they was well off, they didn't have a ton of money, they didn't have more, but they prepared for the future. They was preparing the kids for the future. They was exposing them to different things, and I was just like, I can't wait till I have a family. Like, I was just like, you know what? Watch how I pour into my seeds and just show them, like, all this out here exists. And I don't know if that happened to you as well, like, in college, where you was just like, once I got to Michigan State, it's like, all right, these are all the things I want to do because I'm being exposed to different things. Well, it, it um, you know, it did, again, it, it drove the fact that I wanted to not just travel for work, but travel for my own leisure and my own understanding yeah. of what the world looked like. But, you know, it, it is, it's, it's interesting that when you, com- when you were talking about comparing the experiences of what you knew to when you got to Maine, um, what's crazier when you think about the, your own life, and I asked my mother this question recently, um, about the most money she'd ever made. And the most money she'd ever made, 
I didn't even make that my first job at college. I made more than that. Because I think she told me the most money she ever made was $15,000 a year, which was inconceivable to me. I don't even know if I could have lived off that in college. And so to think about her having made that and raised me, I was just like... I don't know how. how you how houseway houseway how? Right? how I know people now who have you know full time jobs might and have babysitting and childcare and a nanny and they struggling they just like I don't know I'm gonna get everything done <laughs> and so to think um, that she was able to accomplish that despite having as you call it you know lack of is just mind boggling to me you know my mother. Um, she didn't get her, her passport and her bachelor's degree till like later in life. I mean, I've had a passport since I was like 22, I think, right? I've had a passport for over like 20 years. I mean, I've been to over 30 countries. And so when I think about, um, the kind of life I lead or led versus what she led because she had me at 18 years old, it's just, it really puts into perspective just how much I've been blessed, but also, um, it, it shows how that cycle was broken. And yeah. I think that's the part that she should be most proud of. And I'm, I'm proud of as well. It's like, it was effectively broken. Yeah. We have that in common too. Uh, I was a product of a, a teen queen, as I call it. You know, my mom was 17 <laughs> years old when she had me. So extremely young when she had me also. I but that was probably good in terms of how your guys could relate, right? Really good. Like yeah. she's, she's my homie. Like <laughs> she's, I love her to death. She's everything to me, but she's like my best friend. Like, I could talk to my mom about anything, and, you know, I, I don't know where I'd be without her. Like, it's crazy, that relationship that we got. <laughs> yeah. But I do want to rewind back to, I think you was 14, 15 years old, where you was working or doing something with Detroit Free Press yeah, at the time. Yeah, I was, yeah. Um, uh, so I started, I mean, I, I feel like I've been working forever. <laughs> uh, but I started working at the Free Press, Detroit Free Press. This is one of two main papers in the city of Detroit. Um, when I was like 16 years old, I mean, I started working period when I was 14, but, um, yeah, that early, that early. Yeah. My, so my grandmother was a social worker and she got me a job in her, her office where I had to file welfare, uh, welfare cases, which was very ironic because my mother was actually on welfare. So it's like, (laughs) it was ironic that I was working in a welfare office and her mother was a social worker, but um, at any rate, uh, ooh, them paper cuts. I just thinking about them make my hands hurt. Um, so, so yeah. Uh, so that was like sort of one of my first early jobs. But later on, I was answering phones in the sports department at the Free Press, and I got in that job because there was, uh, and I say this often, especially to people um, that you know, like you or other people that we know who do, you know, who have foundations, charities, a part of programs. Sometimes I know it can get discouraging because you look for that massive success. Like if you have 10 people in the program, you want all 10, their lives to turn out great. And sometimes that's not the case. All in, all you need is one seed planted. Mm. And I applied for uh, my high school journalism teacher, encouraged me to apply for this apprenticeship program at the Free Press, where they took 20 Detroit students from the, the metro area gave them a um a 10-week apprenticeship at the newspaper where you know you made like six dollars an hour and you learned about journalism and newspapers and how how the uh stake is made so to speak and that program changed my life because i got exposed to a newsroom 
And from there, uh, toward the end of the program, you know, it sort of word got around that the sports department was looking for people to answer phones. And I applied and I got the job. So in, in my junior and senior year of high school, I was working at the professional paper. And I was also writing up little game summaries. Uh, you know, I know these kids nowadays, they don't know what a newspaper is <laughs> for the most part. But uh, in the newspaper, like if, you know, Karan Butler scores 35 um, in a game, your coach back in those days would call the newspaper and say, Karan Butler scored 35, we won by 20, you know, next highest score was this, that, and that. And it was my job to type that up and oh, put wow. it in the newspaper. Um, it was called Agate. <laughs> that was the name for it. Because when you opened the newspaper, you saw the summaries of all the high school games and the leading scores and all that. Somebody had to do that. That was me. The local, the yeah, national, the, yeah, the, yeah. You had to you had to compile it and put it together. So I did that. My all, my Thursday and Friday nights. That's what I did junior and, and senior year. And uh, I was exposed to, um, you know, working journalists. The Free Press at the time had a uh, had more than a few female sports writers, and so they took me under their wing. And it was invaluable because I never went through that. Um, I never went through that insecurity of feeling like this was something I couldn't do, even though I didn't. You know, there was not like a whole lot of women doing it, even though nobody in my neighborhood had heard of a journalist. You know, they didn't know what that was. I, you know, nobody knew what that was. And even though I had no sort of examples beyond you know those Thursday and Friday nights, I always had the confidence that this is where I belong, this is what I can do, and I know it's male-dominated and I know it's white, but all right, okay, I face worse. I can probably I can probably do this. Yeah, you have been a true trailblazer in this space, and I was that's, that was my next question. I was wondering, was it somebody out there, you said it was people out there that did help you. Was mm -hmm. it a particular mentor or was it just, you know, a couple of people did it by committee. Oh man, it was, right yeah, it was a village. Village. It was a village of mentors. I mean, my first mentor, a woman named Rachel Jones. Um, when I did that apprenticeship program, I was assigned to two uh, writers that took me under their wings. Both women. One was a features writer, Rachel Jones. The other was a sports writer. Um, her name was Johnette Howard, who I later worked with when I was at ESPN. So it came like full circle. We're all still in contact. Uh, to this day. And when I was working and answering phones at high school, it was another woman, Ann Dickerson, L.A. Dickerson, who uh, now runs Michigan State Sports Journalism Program. So everything, you know, they, that's why I'm a believer that everything happens for a reason, that there's a divine order to things and the reason why you meet certain people and are placed in certain situations. And it was a reason I was placed uh, in that situation. So by the time I got to Michigan State and started working for the college newspaper there, um, I already had professional newspaper clips because I've been working at a newspaper. Wrote. Right, so I was ahead of the game at 17, 18, 19 years old. And I started getting internships in college. Um, I interned at five different newspapers uh, while I was in college, got a lot of experience. So when I came out of school, uh, my first job, I started off in a good place at the News and Observer in Raleigh, um, and I was a, a general assignment sports reporter. So it was a lot of things that a lot went into my foundation, and every step of the way, everywhere that I've been, even um, even my last year at ESPN, I mean, I've had mentors and people who throughout who were placed uh, in my life, you know, for a reason. I mean, I, I remember being at ESPN, and I was facing a contract situation. I called up Michael Wilbon. I've known Michael Wilbon since I was in college. And uh, he gave me some you know, great advice. 
Um, Stephen A. Smith was the first person to put me on TV um, on a national level oh. when he had the show, quite frankly. So you remember these things kind of uh, along the way. And uh, even though there are some mentors who are, you talk to every day or every week and constantly, there are some that just parachute in and out, but it's still no less valuable. Yeah, what was the biggest uh, story you broke in that process before you came onto the national stage? What was one that you was really proud of? Um, well, you know what I was really proud of was my work that I did in North Carolina, in Raleigh. And that was the first time I ever won an award. And oh, wow. uh, I did a, a big feature on the Citadel, uh, the Citadel's first female athlete. Okay. Yeah, because uh, I'm old enough to remember when the Citadel didn't allow women into the academy. And it was a big news story when they finally did. And a few years later, after kind of all that hubbub had died down, they started recruiting female athletes. And one of the, fir the first one that, that went there was a, a cross-country runner. And so I went down to the Citadel. I spent a lot of time with her. Uh, she was from Fayetteville, and so I spent some time with her family. Wrote a really, I think a really good story, still one of the best stories I've written. And I won an award for it. And it was, I didn't need the award to validate how good the story was, but what it did teach me was the power of sports to tell stories that are not just about sports. And I think after seeing the success of that story and going through that process, it made me have a particular love for telling sports stories that transcend. Um, and not just transcend, but, um, you know, sports stories that connect uh, us on a level just beyond the results and that kind of thing. I mean, I say this even now, the beauty of sports is that it's one of the few things we do together. It's one of the few things. Like, we don't pray together. Most of us don't eat with different people. We don't do anything that involves a cross-section of people except sports. You know, I, I love the Olympics because every four years, yeah. despite whatever is going on in this country, we get behind whoever. I don't care if it's curling, Snickers, eating. <laughs> I don't care what it is. This whole country will be behind an American team, and I think that's beautiful, you yeah. know. And I always wanted to, to capture the essence of where that came from. So your first national break happened when? First national break happened when I was a sports columnist at the Orlando Sentinel. And for a story I never would have guessed. Um, so I, <laughs> I, I came up with this series um, called Riding With, where very simple concept. I get in the car with star athletes such as yourself, we ride around, you know, I ask you different questions as you're driving and we just kick it, right? And so um, they loved the idea, gave me, you know, the photographer went down there, we got, you know, footage. My first athlete I did was Willis McGahee. Oh, and, snap. Yeah, so it was Willis McGahee, uh, he was in Miami, so we drove down to Miami from Orlando and, and he's got a lot of personality, he's a funny guy, so we're in the car. And I know he has he has a couple kids, and I think he might have had about two different women. But um, I just asked him, just kind of joking around. I said, uh, so um, what's worse, having a baby mama or a wife, you think? <laughs> right? So and he gives this truly hilarious answer. But in the process, he just destroys his baby mama. He was like, man, they just always want something. He just killed her. Went in. Right, went in. And I'm like, oh, okay, all right, this is content. So... Um, <laughs> So we run the story and realize this is 2005, 2006, and newspapers are generally at that time, and just, they have a tradition. They're, they're kind of old school, right? 
So the story runs, and Deadspin picks it up because of the baby mama answer, right? They pick it up, blow it up, and, like, I think the headline was something like, Willis McGay, he really doesn't like baby mamas, right? <laughs> I think it's hilarious. The uh, editor of the paper does not. And so she was livid that that even made it into the story. So me and my editor who edited the piece, she calls in the office, she going off. And she doesn't understand the term baby mama. She was like, that's sexist. And that is, how could you put that in a newspaper of this standard and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, am I really about to get fired over baby mama? Like, is this really about to happen? So, but she did not understand the cultural, you know, because the media got diversity issues too. And that was... <laughs> easily a window Clearly. into the yes into the issues they had so but because it blew up uh ESPN executives saw the story and um that so a couple months later uh it just so happened he knew a mutual friend of mine who would later become you know my my first manager and arranged a, a dinner meeting and I got into ESPN over baby mama that's how it happened. Baby mama got oh, you in. Willis McGahee, wherever you are, <laughs> thank you. Because you helped me get into ESPN. Yes. <laughs> yes, Willis, thank you, wherever you are. So um, I met with the executive. And at the time, there was a guy named Skip Bayless who was leaving his column job to go full time for a show that then that became First Tape, but was called Cold Pizza then. And they were looking for a replacement columnist for ESPN.com. And so... Me and the executive, uh, Keith Cleanscales, we met, we had dinner. Uh, he liked my columns, my work. Um, at the time, I was the only black female sports columnist at a major daily newspaper in North America. And notice I didn't say America. I said North America. North America. So that was, I was the only one out of 405 daily newspapers. So... Um, so, yeah, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you really broke. Yeah, you but the thing is, like, it, it's one of those things where it's it's noteworthy, but it's embarrassing. Yeah, it is. It's embarrassing. It says everything about the profession I was in. Mm. Right. Because um, I'm not the dopest writer. I ain't the smartest. And so for me to be the only one in that position was just it, it just spoke to just kind of a critical problem in the business. That's still a problem, by the way. So. Uh, so at any rate, I went up to ESPN's campus. I, I had a two-day interview session with like 7,000 people, and I got the job. How did you go from writing to being in front of the camera? Was that um, was that like a, a, a strange process for you? Or it was. was okay it, it? It, it wasn't strange, and sometimes ignorance is bliss. Sometimes it's bliss. Sometimes it's the best thing you can do. I'm sure you've heard people say this, commentators, and maybe you've thought it yourself, like when you're looking at a dynamic freshman and they're so good, but they don't know they should be scared. And so that's how it was with TV. It's like, I didn't know that I was supposed to be afraid to be on TV or be nervous on TV. Right. I was always myself. So um, when I started doing you know, shows like Stephen A's, quite frankly, and Outside the Lines and other different ESPN shows, I didn't take it seriously because I never saw myself as a TV person. I'm like, I'm a writer. I write. This TV stuff is fun, but I'm a writer. So, yeah. you know, uh, and that then it was it was a very distinct um, separation between the two. And writers and print journalists, it was kind of like Bloods and Crips, man. Like, we looked at TV people like, you guys are weak, you shallow. Like, we used to look down on TV people. Dang. What ultimately changed, and I, I, I'm not... I'm not embarrassed to admit, and I tell journalism students this all the time, the money you can make in TV does not compare 
to, to the writing money it looks small compared to what you can make in TV. So at a certain time, at a certain point, it became a purely financial decision. Like, I would be crazy not to see uh, where this TV thing could lead. Um, and especially, I remember um, what really made an impression on me in terms of deciding to kind of leave writing behind and, and go TV, like, full time. This, when Matt Lauer got his, his contract, $25 million a year, doesn't have to work on Fridays. I was like... Somebody will actually pay that? I'm in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was oh, like, yeah. oh, yeah, sign yeah, me keep up. the party going. Right. We, you know what I'm saying? We, we ready. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> exactly. So it was just, it just made a lot of financial sense. And then kind of the reach of TV allows you to do a bunch of different things. You know, that's how you wind up getting book deals and all these other things that become an extension of your platform. So, um, you know, those early days, of course, I mean, I had to go through a learning process and learning how to be good on TV um, and and be smooth on TV and that sort of thing. But even that wasn't um, it, it wasn't a, a steep learning curve because from day one, I was always me. I wasn't pretending to be somebody else on TV. I wasn't trying to imitate anybody else on TV. My mentality is what you see is what you get. And if you don't like it, I don't know how to change it. So you either going to have to live with it or you know, this is going, this experiment is going to end up shorter than I think it is. But uh, as my former uh, co-host used to say all the time, Michael Smith, they will learn to like it. And it's so true. It's real. <laughs> yeah. The new year is all about growth and change. Here on the Tough Juice podcast, we had numerous guests come on and talk. I am Compton, Cassie Athena, and so many more where they talked about their growth and evolving as human beings. If you're a business owner looking for growth in your business, LinkedIn can help you find the right hires that can set you up for a strong year. LinkedIn job screen candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so you can hire the right person fast. Things like collaborations, creativity, adaptability. Uh, LinkedIn looks beyond the work skill and put your job post in front of qualified candidates. Uh, who match your business requirements perfectly. That's how LinkedIn makes sure your job post is seen by the people that you want to hire, people with the skill and qualifications and other interests that will help your business grow. It's no wonder a person is hired every eight seconds with LinkedIn. And while companies rated LinkedIn jobs the number one hiring platform delivering quality hires. Find the right person for your business today with LinkedIn jobs. You can pay what you want and get the first $50 off. Just visit linkedin.com slash tough juice. Again, that's linkedin.com slash tough juice to get your first $50 off your first post. Terms and conditions apply. Was you ever intimidated as a woman in that space and as a black woman in that space to be talking about sports or whatever the case may be on the national stage? No, and this is again, this is where those those lessons from how you grew up always do you you well. Um, so I was a neighborhood tomboy, right? And um that was back when I actually had a little bit of speed. <laughs> you know, I had some few more athletic gifts, you know. So I was a neighborhood tomboy and I had a good arm, I had some speed, and so whatever the boys could do, I could do just as good or better, right? right. I played sports in high school, you know, pretty much played in most of my life. So when you're the, I, I was used to being the only girl in, in all boy, all male situations. Totally used to that. You got to hold your own because one thing is for sure, especially when it comes to competing 
against a girl, dudes gonna try harder because they're not trying to be embarrassed about a girl, yeah. or they're gonna try to you know come at you because they want to make clear to you that you're on their turf. And you know, if you're in the company of boys, you gotta be able to roast people. You gotta be able to handle getting roasted. All that stuff that comes with the dynamic of of a neighborhood and learning those social dynamics. And I don't know if kids learn that the same way today. So I'd already been through all that. You know what I mean? So by the time you know, fast forward, you know, twenty, thirty, some years later, when I'm sitting at the desk with a bunch of dudes, and some of them could have been all stars or all pros or won titles and that. That shit didn't phase me. It's like, yeah, okay, but I have no problem asking you this question or wondering why you did something or, you know, kind of debunking your whole argument about why you think something is. Um, So I was always comfortable holding my own about sports, you know, in the company of men. It was funny because, I mean, I never remember a time in my life not liking sports. Uh, it was a natural gravitation to me. And so I used to absorb it a lot as a kid. You know, I was listening uh, back in those days, listening to baseball games on the radio because uh, baseball was actually my favorite sport when I first kind of started really getting into sports. And then it became like college football and college basketball and everything else. So I just I studied a lot of it. I absorbed it and as a kid. You know, as they say, your memory is a sponge. And so when my mother, when she had company, like especially if it was it was a guy, they figured out I like sports, and so they tried to test me. And so they just be asking me questions like, can you name all the quarterbacks? Can you do all that? And I can do all that. So it was just like, so I became like the parlor trick, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, so I wasn't intimidated. It never went through my mind one time about being nervous, about, you know, debating certain dudes or saying my opinion or this kind of stuff because I had just been doing it for so long. And the, the great part about when you come up as a writer um, and having covered all the things I had covered before I got into ESPN, it's that experience base that gives you the confidence. Um, I would never pro- profess to know as much as Karan Butler does about basketball. I wouldn't. Um, but what I have been able to do is I've covered enough basketball teams, enough basketball ca- games to understand the dynamics of what goes on kind of behind the scenes. And that's the part that you kind of bring to the table, you know, more so than, you know, the X's and O's stuff. You know, you know, as a reporter, you know, when, before a coach gets fired, you done heard about it 20 times. You know, coming. you know who's coming. You know who doesn't like the coach. You know why. You know who went to the front office. You know, you know all that. Those are the things you the, the the things you get to learn as a reporter. So when you see a situation go down, you're like, yep, that's because such and such probably told the GM and this yep. happened and that Connecting happened. The dots. You connect the dots. You know, that's what you are as a journalist. You're the dot connector. And so that was the, the, the area and expertise I always tried to kind of bring to things. How did one of my favorite shows ever, uh, Like It or Love It, I didn't say hated it, <laughs> I said Like It or Love It, it's his and hers. Oh, how thank did you. It, how did that come about with you and Mike? Um, it, we won the battle of attrition, as we like to say. Um, you know, here's, here's the one thing that is different um, in television is that people are real blunt to the point where they don't care if they insult you, right? And so you better not be sensitive in TV, especially if you're a woman. So Mike and I have been friends, uh, cause he and I met when he was at the Boston Globe and I was at the Free Press at the time, at, uh, cause I went to work for them for six years uh, after I graduated uh, from college. And he and I met then, we were both covering the NBA playoffs. And so we kept in touch and we, and we were cool. And once he got to ESPN before I did, and once I got there, um, 
you know, we we were able to kind of see each other on a, on a regular basis. And based off our our camaraderie, our friendship, the conversations that we had, we knew we had something. We like, okay, we have something. So we told the producers, um, and a few times we filled in on first take uh, and debated each other and, and had some incredible memorable moments on there. And so other people could kind of see it, but the people who made the decisions could not. And I remember, you know, early on when we went to them and said, hey, we got something, you know, y'all should figure out a way to put us together. The response we got was, y'all think too much alike. But we knew it wasn't because we thought alike. We knew it was because aesthetically we looked alike. And by that, I mean this. At the time, what was big in TV, and it still is to to some degree, was white guy debating black guy. I I say this about... um, PTI all the time, which is the most successful debate show of all time. It's white guy, black guy, they're the same guy. The only difference is that they are different racially. Tony and Mike been arguing and friends for 40 years, right? They've been doing only the same thing. For 30 minutes. <laughs> right, for 30 <laughs> minutes, right? But they're, they're the same grumpy old dude. Like, they're the same dude, right? But to the viewer, it looks different because it's white guy, black guy, right? And so, and yeah, they do have different opinions. So I don't want to make it seem like it's like totally sameness, but they're 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 kind of the same. The reason why we were told that is because you have a um, you know kind of a, a younger African American man and a younger African American woman. Visually, the audience cannot know what's distinct because y'all both black. Yeah. So of course y'all both black. Y'all gotta both think the same. <laughs> It's like, what? He married with three kids. At the time, I was single. We like, I'm still yeah. in them streets. You know what I'm saying? I'm out saying? here. I'm out here. And, you know, so Mike and Ben about 9 p.m. every night. Like, we had a lot of difference in just the way we saw things. And so we were, you know, we were told that. One producer said to us, um, his quote was, and, and we're friends with him, and we, we love him, but uh, we, we used to mess with him, especially after we got our show. He told us, y'all just ain't the jump off. First of all, he used jump off, which I was like, oh, wow. he doesn't know how that's actually used, but he said, y'all like to jump off. That's what he told us. You gotta okay. use it correctly. Gotta, that's yeah. not what a jump <laughs> off is, but okay, I get you the general gist of what you're saying. So, um, so yeah, I mean, we got discouraged earlier, and so we got tired, and so we said, you know what, fuck it, we about to start a podcast. And so we went to um, the powers that be. Uh, we had to audition, <laughs> which we were like, we do? Okay. So we auditioned, and his and hers started as a podcast. Wow. And it became a TV show, and it became um, a show only because uh, when they had a show called Numbers Never Lie, Jalen Rose was a part of the show. Jalen left the show to do NBA Countdown. They needed another person, and that person was me. So Mike and I got together, not because somebody was brilliant enough to say, you know what, these two deserve their own show. I'm going to take a chance. Nah, won the war of attrition. That's all it was. And uh, at the time, it was me, Mike, and a a third person. Third person wound up leaving, and then it just became me and Mike. But the show was still called Numbers Never Lie, and it didn't make any sense. It was not, we tried to make it make sense for us, but the podcast was becoming so successful, and they saw that there was something there. And then they changed the name of the show to His and Hers. And so um, after that, they changed it to His and Hers. They put our likeness, our you know faces in the show. Boy, they should have never did that because it was on. Because you know, one thing that we both decided from day one: if we go go down, we going down our way. Yeah. We're not going down with the way 
that they think TV should be done. We're not going down uh, by doing somebody else's version of what they think we should be. We going down our way, good or bad, yeah. you know? And so that's why the skits came. That's why all that other stuff, that people, goofy stuff. I mean, we treated um, that 12 to 1 p.m. hour like straight up a romper room. We didn't give a damn. We're like, it's just... And it was lit. And it was lit. And that's why it, people loved it. It's just the fact that we were our, ourselves... Uh, we was black as hell on TV and didn't care, and we were bringing all this kind of black pop culture stuff to television. And it was funny because when people are like, "Oh, the skits," you know, because we did the Coming to America skit and Boys in the crazy. Hood, yeah, <laughs> we did all those like crazy things, Empire, and people are like, "Oh, where did the skits come from?" And I was like, "They came from the fact." that we refuse to allow, again, somebody else's version of what they thought TV should be. We used to make movie references. It came, it, and it's a, it's a lesson too about, you know, be yourself. One that, honestly, Stuart Scott, like, taught more than anybody is like, be yourself, and again, they will learn to like it. We used to make a bunch of movie references on the show all the time, and one, a producer said to us, well, I don't know if people get your references, so you guys might want to kind of chill out on the references. And we refused. And my comeback to that producer was, well, when I watched Chris Berman on NFL Countdown, he references a whole bunch of stuff. I don't even know what the hell he's talking about. But y'all don't tell him to stop. Yeah. So it's like we, you just had to live with these movie references. And so from the movie references, uh, it was Eddie Murphy's, I think it was his 50th birthday, we were going to try to do an entire show of uh, just coming to America references. Wow. Like, that's, that's, we were going to try to do that. Because NFL Live had done it with Princess Bride. We're like, no, we're going to do it with coming to America. And one of the producers on staff came up with the idea of, well, instead of doing that, you know, maybe we could try to do the skit, uh, do a skit about it. And we were like, um, so we just got to kind of thinking in the lab, and it just so happened to be the weekend that. Uh, it was a lit sports weekend. It was a Kentucky Derby, Mayweather and Pacquiao were fighting, Ooh. and it was the NFL draft. That was all happening like the same weekend. So we wanted to figure out some way to kind of incorporate that. So it it led to that skit, which took us six hours to film. And uh, uh, it was outside of Bristol. I'm trying to think of the, the name of the city. But um, nevertheless, uh, we did it in a barbershop, got it, recruited people to help us, and, you know, Nailed it, cause you can't miss with that. Yeah, we miss with that it. one. <laughs> There's nothing else we can do. We gonna get clowned on the internet forever. But that was part of us bringing ourselves to the show. So the lesson I always say is like, be yourself, even if you don't have a whole lot of people supporting your authenticity. <laughs> Did you feel like that was a huge risk that you that you and Mike took going out there on the limb and, and oh, doing that? Absolutely, because well, one, you know, we you're taking an iconic movie. But even just beyond that, it's just, it didn't really fit what sports television was. And to go to color so far outside the lines, I think that, you know, if that doesn't, that doesn't go viral the way that it did, um, I don't know that we try to do that again. I don't know that the next time we have an opportunity to uh, to take a big swing that we actually do it. But we were so excited about the idea, and that's why I say ignorance is bliss. We didn't even think about that. We never thought about a failure rate. We're like, we about to kill this. Yeah, like, it's going down. Right? I was like, all those times that I watched Coming to America are about to pay off right now. Yeah. So, so we more or less thought about 
looked at it from a, a optimistic standpoint about how we was we were changed the game by doing it as opposed to what would happen if it wasn't successful. When did you realize that you had this massive platform that you have? Um, the only time I actually realized I had the massive platform is when I got in trouble for shit. That was the only <laughs> time I was like, damn, a lot of people paying attention, huh? Um, so, but on a day-to-day basis, no. I mean, I, I didn't really think of it that way. I mean, it was, don't get me wrong, coming from a newspaper world, um, you know, when I my last job before I got to ESPN was at the Orlando Sentinel. The Sentinel's circulation, I think, might have been like 230,000, 240,000 daily. So to come from that to going to millions of people are suddenly exposed to who you are, that was an adjustment, but not because of the platform. It was an adjustment because suddenly I'm a part of the story as much as what I'm saying in writing. Because ESPN turns you into a celebrity, whether you want to or not. Yeah. And I was not accustomed to that. You know, I came up from very old school, traditional journalism values where you're not the story. But at ESPN, that's not the case. You know, they don't say whenever Stephen A. says something crazy, they don't say they, it, that's the headline. Stephen A. says something crazy. Yeah. Right. So he's just as much a part of the brand as as anything else. And that was the part that I had to get used to because suddenly you go out in public and people recognize you and they want to take pictures. And I wasn't used to that. You know, that was a whole new world for me. And um, as somebody, despite the fact, yeah, I'm comfortable talking to millions of people on camera and all that. Um, I'm kind of somebody who does not like to be the center of attention. Yes. So uh, it was that was a really big adjustment. So speaking of not being the center of attention to being the topic and discussion of all <laughs> things yeah. was when, you know, Donald Trump had added you mm-hmm. and he had to, you know, respond to whatever statement or suggestion you made on the national stage. What was that moment like and what was you going through in that process? Well, I think um, this was 2017 and we were just off the heels of Charlottesville and you know, to see... Which was crazy. Which, I mean, that's that's (laughs) not even a word for it almost. I mean, if you... The one thing about when, you know, you're you're black in our age is that I don't have to go to a history book, even though, you know, I'm I'm well-versed. I don't have to go to a history book to ask... Uh, or just to understand what happened in the civil rights movement. I just asked my mother. Yeah. My mother, went, my mother, one generation, she was separate drinking fountains, right? So that's the historical context it is for a lot of black people in this country. So as much as I knew that and as much as I read and even experienced on some level myself to see an American city overtaken by domestic terrorists, and mm. and races and Nazis, I mean, the neo-Nazis was, I could, I mean, it was unfathomable. And so from that, to hear our own president talk about both sides as if um, those people who were so hateful and heinous had a, had a right uh, to inflict that level of hatred on other people. I mean, I was the level of, disappointed and heartbreak I felt just as a citizen of this country it just stayed with me and as you know when you do sports um you don't necessarily have an outlet for that you know because I got to talk about why Blaine Gabbert sucks not about like what happened at Charlottesville so you know there was a lot of uh frustration and anger I still felt about that incident and so fast forward to some weeks later and um I just got into a back and forth with somebody on Twitter 
who was trying to defend those comments that Donald Trump made. And I didn't think I was saying anything that controversial um, because the, the wonderful writer, uh, ta Coates, had laid out a piece for The Atlantic um, about why Donald Trump was a white supremacist. And I read the piece and a lot of stuff in there I'd already known and I agreed with what Ta-Nehisi said. And so I'm getting this back and forth with somebody and I'm just like, yo, he's a white supremacist. Like, this ain't hard. Like, this is not hard to me. Here's the article. And, and right, I mean, I didn't even hand him the article. I'm just like, I mean, this is, I'm thinking this is so basic. So I thought nothing of it. I mean, again, this is just a back and forth. This is not me just a single individual tweet acting Donald Trump, A, you a white supremacist. Like, it wasn't like that. And so I just didn't think anything of it. And somebody, I guess, went through my replies. And next thing I know, it just snowballed. And Fox and a bunch of other places picked it up. And so it's sort of like you tweeted. And then 12 hours later, it's a shitstorm. And that's kind of that's kind of what happened. And, um, you know, I mean, I guess probably the thing that that kind of kept me uh, kind of level is like, I didn't think I said anything wrong. So I was just like, well, prove me wrong. Like, yeah. y'all can't. And, uh, and you did. <laughs> right. And yeah. all he's done is made the case uh, ever since. And so, um, so, yeah, I mean, it was just crazy, the reaction, because never, never did I expect that the White House, and certainly not the president, would ever respond. Why would they care about a, a sports center anchor? There's a lot of problems <laughs> happening in this world. But it became such a big story, and I think a lot of it had to do with who was saying it and the company I represented. You know, um, it's it's funny. I couldn't help but notice during the debates, the, pre the Democratic debates, people openly call the president a racist now, like openly. It's just, it said like, hey, that cup is red. Like, yeah. that's how it's said now. And so it was just funny how in 2017 it was so controversial. <laughs> and I was like, but now everybody says it every day. Yeah. Um, but, uh, no, I never expected that to be the case. And um, I have some friends who cover the White House, and I never forget this. I was I was at ESPN. We were getting the show ready for that night, and um, this is when I was doing the 6 o'clock Sports Center. And my phone starts going off, and uh, my friends who covered the White House, they were like, oh, my God, girl, they just asked the press secretary about you in the, in the press conference. I was like, what? And... I turned on the TV and my Twitter just lit up. And yeah, one of the reporters asked uh, who then the then press uh, press secretary Sarah, uh, press secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders if she thought what I said was a fireable offense, and she said it was. Oh, wow. And so now it's escalated to not only the White House has responded, the White House has asked for me to be fired. So it went from. You know, DEFCON 5 to 1 in a hurry. People always think it's DEFCON 5. It's actually the reverse, but that's what's that. <laughs> um, so then then I'm just like, uh-oh, uh-oh. <laughs> you know, this really, this ain't going away. And I knew that, um, so of course, ESPN executives, they're calling, and there's that little dance that's happening. And um, when when that happened, and then the, the next morning, uh, Trump tweeted about me. And so... Very quickly, uh, it turned my entire life into chaos. Talk about the support that you got from people from you know all walks of life. Most importantly, like who was your biggest supporters during that process? Well, um, it was so many. Um, you know, my 
my mother, I told this story once before, my mother actually called the White House, which I don't know what she was trying she to do. called the White but House? Don't mess with a black woman's child. Yeah. That's okay. Leave don't. my baby alone. <laughs> and I was like, who are you going to ask for? That's, I was like, who are you going to talk to? Right. need to holler at you. Because she was so upset at the fact that Sarah Huckabee Sanders had called for me to be, to be fired. So obviously my family was a big support. My mother... Um, uh, then boyfriend, husband now, like he was a big support. Uh, so many of my colleagues at ESPN, Mike, Carrie Champ, like so many people, you know, they had my back a hundred percent. And uh, it was for me really touching. And as much as, was I getting a ton of hate mail? Yeah. I mean, there was even some protesters, I think that came to ESPN. So that was that element of it, but I was far more touched by the support and especially a lot of, unlikely support from, you know, from the sports world, like Kevin Durant, had, you know, Kevin Durant and I had never had a conversation before. And um, he let me know that, you know, he supported me. Uh, Colin Kaepernick, you know, he was one of the first to tweet uh, in support. Dwayne Wade, like it was so many um, people that I was, it, it really made me, um, you know, it really touched me. But more importantly, uh, and to be honest, it gave me protection. Because if that doesn't happen, I don't know if this goes. I mean, yes, I eventually left ESPN, but I left on my own terms. I don't know if that support isn't there if I wind up having to leave and not quietly. You know what I'm saying? It's like it could have really gotten messy. It had the potential to, to, to be that if that support isn't there. Because I'm sure... And, you know, nobody outright said this to me, but just being logical that in ESPN's mind, they're thinking of how to minimize the problem and eliminate the quick. news line quick. And a good way to do that is to remove me. Yeah. But seeing all that support and all that reaction made it much more difficult to do that. So I, I thank them for that because I'm on to being employed a lot longer <laughs> there in part because of that. I saw a photo that made me really full. You know, I think it was uh, Michael Wilbon, Mark uh, Spears, uh, all you guys yeah. just together. Uh, Michael Eves. Michael Eves, yeah. yeah. We were yeah. at Eves' house. Yeah. yeah. I was just like, that made me just feel some type of way. It had my back. It so, really did. Um, I've been a member of the National Association of Black Journalists since I was a teenager. And those guys in that photo, uh, Mark Spears, Sherrod Blakely, uh, Michael Eves. I mean, those guys I've known for years. And when it went down, they they were the first um, or among the first to come to me and say, what do you need? What can we do? How can we help? Just like that. Just like that. No questions asked. And, you know, they wanted to make sure uh, that I knew I was loved and supported and they had me. And I think that this people always tell you this, that when it's easy to to be supportive when everything's great, you know, when things are good and uh, all the, you know, there's a, there's some benefit to being close to somebody who's doing really mm. well. But when the shit hit the fan, it ain't that easy. And that's when you find out who really has your back and who you can really count on in those moments. And the beauty for me is that I found out in those moments that there was a lot of people that I could count on. You talked about that group and the black, was it the... The National Association of Black you Journalists. You ended up being honored. I did. Yeah, I did. I was the Journalist of the Year. 
Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and it was <laughs> it was very special because of what that organization has meant to me. It's changed my life. Um, it's the largest minority journalism organization in the country, uh, talking about over 3,000 black journalists. And yeah, it, uh, it not only changed my life, um, but it changed the life of so many, you know, black journalists. And it's, um, so to receive that award from them, which is, you know, their highest honor essentially, and to receive it in Detroit, because the convention, they give the award out at the annual convention. And that year the convention was in Detroit. That just brought everything full circle. Full circle. So um, I could not have put, I could have never guessed that that would ever have been something that, uh, you know, that I would ever receive. And so to receive it under those circumstances was, it's still pretty mind blowing even now when I think about it. How important is ownership and creativity? Like when you're creating stories or building content or whatever you're doing? It is, it's vital. And I think, we're seeing that ownership, how it pays dividends now in real time. I mean, it, you know, we're here in, in, in Cali and in L.A. and notice what we're seeing in terms of what's being produced. Movies like Queen and Slim, mm. uh, shows like Insecure, Atlanta, that speaks to what that ownership is and that authenticity. When you put, especially people of color, in positions where they don't have to worry about fitting into a corporate structure or um, trying to change themselves to fit in, you'd be surprised the brilliance that can come out of that. And I'm very inspired by that. And we were talking about his and hers a moment ago. That's what made the show special. They left us alone. <laughs> That's what made it special. They left us alone and let us have ownership over the show, over who we were. And... That's why even now, um, you know, we're a few years from it being on the air. People still say to me what you said. That was my favorite show. And they still remember all the skits and all that. That's why that happens. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that creativity, if it comes from a place of ownership and authenticity, it's going to lead to something probably pretty dynamic. What's the future of journalism? In your eyes, with Man, so much changing. And... I don't know. I'm a little scared because... Uh, <laughs> I'm a little scared, um, mostly because, you know, as much as there, I know there's a lot going on in this country and a lot for us to, to really pay attention to, but I think people need to really understand that shrinking media is really a incredibly critical problem. By shrinking media, I mean this, when you have only a few corporations owning all the newspapers, owning all the television stations, the way that information is disseminated can't always be trusted. And now, when I was coming up, uh, if you turn to, say, Fox, you didn't know what the bent was or what, you know, you didn't know, right? Yeah. They were just giving me the nightly news and that was that and, okay, everybody go about their day. But now you know exactly what stations mean what. Oh, okay, if I watch Fox Conservative, yeah. right? If I watch this, that. You know immediately, right? That's bad. <laughs> That's yeah. not good. So um, I worry about, especially under the scope of this presidency, how journalism has been influenced. And while you do have a lot more digital outlets, which I think is great and has been creative, I think the flow of information um, is really been weaponized a lot. Um, and so... So I'm concerned from that standpoint. Uh, I'm concerned accuracy and truth does not mean what it used to mean. Um, 
And for that matter, when it comes to just purely, you know, black people, people of color, our place in this business, our footing is slipping. Um, it's slipped, in fact. It was never great. But the number of us leaving the business, the number of us who don't want to get in the business is staggering. And that's a problem because uh, you can't have uh, a journalism world that is not fairly accurately or in context reporting on all communities. And uh, that's just not the case now. So I, I'm very concerned about the future uh, of journalism. And I try to do what I can to encourage us to go into it. But it's hard when... You know, you have uh, unpaid internships and, you know, starting off at low salaries. I mean, when I came out of school, and this is 1997, the average salary for a journalist was $19,000 a year. Wow. Imagine trying to convince somebody to, and I'm such a fool, I still went into it, but no, no but imagine, imagine. You're passionate about but it. But I was, but I, that's why I always tell kids, if you're passionate about it, if you love it, you'll make money, right? Yeah. But still, that's a hard sale, $19,000 yeah. a year. I don't know what it is now. I'm guessing the needle has not moved that much, but that's hard. It's like, it's not, it's a profession that you have to invest a whole lot in. You move a lot. There's a lot of downsides, you know, in terms of a personal life. Uh, but I think it's, you know, far more rewarding, obviously the upsides, but still like you have to, to be able to convince people to still do this anyway is tough. And now when journalists are seeing in a very hostile light with no, you know, with a, a huge assist from the president who labels journalists the enemies of the state. I'm just really concerned about where the profession is headed, especially as it shrinks. You know, there were like, over, um, uh, there's probably like eight, 9,000 jobs um, or journalists laid off this year. That's a huge amount. So, you know, and I know people have their issues with the media and I'm not trying to act like those issues don't exist. But when you think about some of the some of the things that we have learned and been able to know because of journalism, it's a it's a pretty fat list. I mean, Watergate, like it's just it's so many things yeah. like without the help of journalists. I mean, Ida B. Lynch, the whole reason, you know, there is there was light shed about the the drastic and horrible impact of lynching was because of Ida B. Wells. So eliminate those people from the equation and you think about what we don't know. And even now with uh, journalists trying to get a handle on how to cover this presidency, it's what we're finding out is because there are still, luckily, some entities still committed you know, to doing journalism. So I, I just... Um, I worry about it. I hope it gets better. Um, I'm not hopeful. I wish it would be less corporate, <laughs> but um, hopefully there'll be um, maybe more independent uh, investors that get into this that can that can kind of get things on the right track. Ultimately, when you look back at your legacy, my last question, what do you want that to be? Uh, uh, service. I mean, look, the, the truth is, is that... Uh, I could stop tomorrow and from a resume standpoint be fine. It's not about my resume. It is about who else can I help get into this business, grow in this business, flourish in this business. Because everybody, no matter what profession you're in, you're standing on the shoulders of somebody else. And so I'm just trying to figure out ways that I can bulk up my shoulders. I can sharpen my shoulders so that other people can stand on them. And this would be a pretty hollow career to me if I did not help as many 
as people as I possibly could, particularly women, particularly black women mm. and people of color um, just in general. So that's that's just the mission for me, you know, straight up. That's what it's all about, straight up and down. Appreciate you. Oh, I appreciate you. Yeah, it a was tremendous a pleasure and honor. Thank you. Anytime. <laughs> yeah, thanks, um, Queen. Thank mm -hmm. you. <laughs> oh, this was so much fun. <laughs>